Well, good morning. Welcome again to another week of being scattered together. We continue to miss and pray for you. We continue to work towards finding a way to get us safely into this place where we can worship once again together. Um, but we're just trusting, uh, as I've been saying each week, that God really has a purpose in what he's doing right now. It's not just about giving us faith while we wait. It's about using us as his church in this time, as we aren't gathered here, to be his church in all the places he's scattered us to. May he continue to do that work in each one of us. Uh, we're going to come to this time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app with you there, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Uh, we're continuing this uh, fall mini-series, Faithfulness into the Unknown, looking at uh, what is collectively here known as the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16, reading to the end of the chapter. Let's read what Matthew writes here. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us just for a moment and ask God's blessing here on the preaching of his word, and then we'll dig into this. Spirit of God, we ask you, as I pray you have been already, to be very present with us now as we come to your word. Um, we want to be obedient to what it is that you have commanded us. And by your spirit, you inspired men to write down these words so we would have a faithful witness of what it is that you've said how it is that you lived and loved and, and what it is we're supposed to do as followers of yours. So I pray that you would just press that into our hearts and then give us hearts of uh, submission. Give us ears to hear and hearts of submission to what it is that you're calling us to do so that we might be faithful disciples of yours and faithful as a church to follow what you've called us to. Accomplish that, I pray, God, as well as the work of encouragement and, and conviction and all those things in every way that you want to accomplish that this morning. And now, as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. So we, we spent some time last week looking specifically at, at Jesus' authority that he speaks of there in verse 18. So really just focusing in like that is on what Jesus meant by his great claim that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, as well as how Jesus' authority is something that is both to be feared as well as to be followed. If you didn't get a chance for some reason this past week to watch or listen to that message, I'd encourage you to make some time this week to, to, to do so because Jesus' authority, it really is the, the basis, the whole foundation upon which he lays this great commission to the church, which is what we're now going to focus on today. Now, again, I know, as I said last week, collectively, all together, verses 16 through 20 here, people often think of that all together. That's the Great Commission. And yet, as I said, uh, really, when you look more closely, you can see kind of a three-part division where, where Jesus' commission itself, like, like what it is that Jesus has called us specifically to do, we see here in verses 19 through the beginning of verse 20. 
And then sandwiched between, this commission is sandwiched between Jesus' great claim in verse 18 and his great comfort at the second half of verse 20. And as I began thinking about this commission that Jesus has laid out for his disciples following his resurrection to make disciples of all nations, which, by the way, if you didn't know, is the exact same mission that Jesus calls every one of his disciples to still today, uh, I, I was struck by a really interesting parallel that you see all the way back in the creation account that we have recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1. If you've never read that part of the Bible, what we have recorded for us there in Genesis 1 is the authoritative voice of God speaking everything into existence and then giving it a purpose. So, so God will say, let there be these different lights in the sky and let them fulfill these different purposes. Uh, let there be fruits and vegetation. Let them fulfill this purpose. And then in response to the authoritative voice of God, all these things come into existence and fulfill that purpose. And I don't know why I did this exactly, but, but for some reason, whenever I read that account in the past, I always assumed that the authoritative voice speaking over creation and speaking everything to existence was the voice of God the Father. I just kind of, that's what I pictured in my mind. And yet, when you read, for instance, uh, the beginning of John's gospel or what Paul writes to the church in Colossians, you have these very clear statements about Jesus that tell us that all things were created by him and for him. In fact, John says there is nothing in all of creation that exists that was not made by him. So, so already there's an interesting parallel between the authoritative voice of the Son speaking creation into existence back in Genesis and the authoritative voice of Jesus here in our passage commissioning his church. And yet, there's actually one further parallel in particular that you see immediately following the creation of men and women that we have in Genesis 1.27, where John commissions Adam and Eve, the, the part of his creation that he said made in his image and likeness, commissions them with these words, quote, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, which among many other things reveals to us that there's something deeply embedded within God's design for humanity itself that includes multiplication, includes Growth. Now, yes, undoubtedly, the multiplication we read about in Genesis 1 is, is certainly physical in nature. God's saying, make a whole lot of babies, start filling this place up. That, that's what he's talking about there. And yet, when you come to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, what you see is that the design of God for his church, for, for those who are his new creations, is still multiplication. But multiplication that is now spiritual in nature. So, multiplication. This is what God has designed for, for who he's made us to be and what our purpose is. We are designed as his creation for multiplication. And yet, I don't know, whether, whether it's just as a result of the radical individualism that so defines so much of our modern Western 21st century culture, or, or merely a theoretical understanding of Jesus' authority, both of which leading us to see Jesus' great commission here as uh, an option, just optional at best. The default mode of many of Jesus' disciples that we see today is not multiplication. That's not the default mode that we go to. If anything, what it really is is more what I would call insulation. And what I mean by that is we, we tend to see 
a relationship with Jesus primarily as being about me and him. It's personal. This is my personal relationship with Jesus that I build on. Uh, we, we see a relationship with, with Jesus as the church about working to more deeply establish the Christian community that already exists in the church and not about expanding it necessarily. And ultimately, we see a relationship with Jesus about becoming a better disciple ourselves and not so much about making new ones. Now, please, hear me. I'm not for a moment suggesting that deepening of either our personal faith or, or our corporate faith as a church is some kind of lower secondary pursuit. It's not. That's an essential pursuit. But what I am saying, and what I believe Jesus is saying here in this passage, is that spiritual growth for a church or for those within the church is never meant to be an end in itself. It's not just become more spiritually mature and then that's good. Uh, no, the, the spiritual growth is meant to be the means by which our enjoyment of God is increased, yes, but also, hear me, the means by which we are better prepared for and equipped for the mission to which Jesus has called us. That's, that's a big part of what our spiritual growth is supposed to be. Or as you've heard me say repeatedly, if you've been here for any length of time, the transforming message of the gospel is not just that we've been saved from something, it's also that we've been saved to something. And the mission that Jesus has saved every disciple to is to make disciples. To make disciples. That, that is like to a ministry of spiritual multiplication, whereby we call people to surrender the authority of their lives to Jesus, to, to, to commit to him as their Lord and Savior. That, that, that's a, a basic definition of both what a disciple is as well as what Jesus calls every disciple of his to go and make. So all I want us to do this morning uh, as we press on into the unknown of this crazy COVID-19 season together as a church family, and yeah, what is got to be one of the strangest fall kickoffs ever, is to just go back and, and really dig into these verses for just a few minutes and refocus our hearts and our minds again on, on, on all together as a church on what it is that Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has commissioned us to do regardless of, of COVID or any other circumstances. Focusing our minds again, what has Jesus called us to do as his church? The hope being that in doing so, and, and truly living out this disciple-making process that Jesus gives us here of going, baptizing, and teaching. It's so awesome that Jesus didn't just say, go make disciples. He, he, he gave us a process of what to do and to follow. Going, baptizing, teaching. That as we do that and truly live that out, that we'll remain faithful as a church to the mission that Jesus has saved us to. And... By God's grace, we'll see his kingdom continue to come and extend to every nation in the world. That's the hope. And that's how I want us to begin this year as a church. So again, if you closed your Bibles, closed your Bible app, would you open it again to that passage, Matthew 28? Now we're going to start in verse 19. Follow along with me as we dig in now to part two of this kickoff miniseries, Faithfulness into the Unknown. Okay, so what's the first stage? How do we do what Jesus has called us to? Let's look at the first stage of the disciple-making process that Jesus gave to his disciples here, going. Going. And I want us to begin here not only because Jesus begins here, but because if you've ever heard a message or messages preached on Jesus' great commission before, you've undoubtedly 
heard it presented in at least one of these two ways. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but most of you will have heard this. Either the preacher will put a tremendous amount of emphasis on our going. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And so they, they put a tremendous amount of emphasis on going. And you've heard this message if you attended, for instance, a, a Bible school like I went to in my undergrad that had a very strong emphasis on world missions. It was like, Jesus has called us to go. You were to go to the nations. Look at what he's calling you to do. You need to get out of here and go. Uh, so that's one way. Or you heard a preacher give almost no emphasis to going at all. Uh, noting rightly that in the original Greek text, the emphasis on the word for make disciples, that's actually what the, the focus and the emphasis is on. It's not on going or baptizing or teaching. Okay, so which one is it? <laughs> which one are we supposed to do? Go, uh, make disciples? Which one is it? Well, hopefully you can see, I mean, in one sense, it's both. They're both right, or at least they're both connected, for, for it's true. Grammatically speaking, in the New Testament text here, the emphasis in the Greek is on the word for make disciples. It's make disciples. That's what the command that Jesus is giving. So because of that, that's how we understand that make disciples is Jesus' command, and then going, baptizing, teaching. That's the process. That's the means by which we make disciples, by which we do that. But at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that going is the very first means that Jesus gives us to how to make disciples, okay? So we can't, we can't say that just because going isn't the command, that it's an irrelevant part of Jesus' commission. No, it's, it's an essential part. We are to be going. That's the very first way he says we do this. And so if that's the first way we're supposed to make disciples, then just thinking about that in our own lives, thinking about that in your life and in mine, how, how are we to be obedient to this command, to go and make disciples? I think what that means, first and foremost, is that we need to really examine our lives. We need to examine how it is we operate as a church. And, and in doing that, we need to root out and repent of every place where it is both individually and corporately. We have substituted Jesus' call to go with what I'm calling a come and see ministry. Where we've substituted go, we've taken that out and put in a come and see ministry. Here's what I mean by that. When you just look at the example of Jesus himself in the Gospels alone, what you see is what theologians refer to as incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry, that is what you don't see is Jesus sitting up in heaven being like, listen, I'm God. I'm the God of the universe. I made everything. I made this world. I made you. I made everything in it. So worship me. Love me. I love you. Why don't you love me? No, what you see is Jesus leaving leading all the comforts, the glories, and the riches of heaven, and, and taking on fragile human flesh and coming to earth. That is, he is incarnating himself into our world. He's writing himself into our story, and then he goes, he goes to every place where the lost and hurting and rejected of the world are, and he, he teaches them, and he heals them, and he loves them, and he laughs with them. He calls them to freedom and purpose and life like no other in himself. And then, after giving his very life to purchase that freedom and then rising again from the dead, Jesus tells his disciples these exact words, John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. God sent me to go make disciples. I've done that now. I'm sending you to go and make disciples. And then 
they go. The disciples do go and at Jesus' command. And the result is this tiny, insignificant movement called the Way spreads all across the known world through the centuries to the place where 2,000 years later, you and I now know about Jesus and uh, become, I pray, disciples of him ourselves. That's, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to, to go and make disciples. That, that, that's the model that Jesus lived out and that he's now calling all of his disciples to, to do. Namely, to, to leave our places of safety and comfort, the places where we feel secure and known and understood, and go, go to where the lost and dying of the world are, wherever that is, whether that's overseas or across the hallway or across the street, in order to shine the light of Jesus, in order to serve those who can't repay us in any way, in order to share the hope of the gospel with them. That's, that's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. And yet, God help us, what, what we've done in many cases instead is stay exactly where we are. Or, 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 or worse, we've, we've retreated inside our safe church buildings and our homes, and then what we've done is we've created really great worship services, really tasty potlucks, really intimate and engaging Bible studies, and then basically said to the world, you leave your places of comfort and security, places where you're known and understood, and come and see how good Jesus is. Essentially saying to the world, you go, you Incarnate yourself into our world so you can come and see how good Jesus is. Which isn't for a moment. Listen, it's not for a moment to say community events, uh, welcoming home groups shouldn't be a part of what the church is. We, we do that as a church, absolutely. And yet, look at Jesus' words again. His primary call is not to create spaces and services for people to come to us. That, that's not how, at least initially, disciples are made. It's for the church to get outside of these four walls and to go to them. The call is not come to church. It's church, you go to them. That's the commission of Jesus. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that I know the answer to this. I don't. But, but if God truly does work all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, as Paul says in Romans 8, then I wonder... It makes me wonder if maybe one of God's good purposes in COVID-19 wasn't to move the church out of their places of comfort and safety, even just for a season, to move us out, to, to scatter us exactly as he did to the early church in Acts 8, forcing us to have to go to the places and spaces that we have abandoned or retreated from. Because it's not at all that the gathering of God's people isn't essential to the life and the health of the church. Absolutely it is. It's essential that we gather, and, and, and as soon as it's safe to do so, I want us to get us in here and doing that. And yet, if we're ever going to be obedient to Jesus' commission here, what he's commissioned us to here, the one thing is to go and make disciples. Gathering can't be the only thing that we're focused on. We're also going to need to go. We're going to need to go. In fact, that's the very first thing Jesus says we need to do. Okay. So that's the first step. First step for making disciples, going to the places and spaces where God has sovereignly placed you or forced you to go. 
calling people by your words as well as your example to a life like no other with Jesus. That's the very first thing. But as we're going and doing that, and that's very much the sense of the Greek word that Jesus uses for go, it's an active verb that literally means as you're going, make disciples. The hope, of course, is that some people will, over time, yeah, surrender authority of their lives to Jesus and commit themselves to Him as their Savior and Lord. And so by going on to command, baptizing, as well as teaching of those who become disciples themselves, what Jesus is showing us is that the call to make disciples doesn't end with a profession of faith. It's not like, okay, you've trusted Jesus, all right, I'm moving on to the next. No, there's, there's more to do in this making disciples. It's a lifelong process whereby we, we make disciples, uh, they, we encourage them towards a public declaration of their commitment to faith in Jesus through baptism, and then are taught. Those disciples are encouraged. They, they're discipled in their lives in obedience to all that Jesus commanded. That's, that's the fullness of what it means to make disciples. And those last two parts, actually, baptism and teaching, in a church context, those are the parts that we often talk about and think about when we talk about discipleship. We think of those two things in particular. And yet, as my friend and brother Bill Clem pointed out to us a couple of years back at our winter retreat, I don't know if you remember that, by including going as a part of the process of making disciples as well, what Jesus is showing us is that discipleship is something that can actually begin before someone ever makes a profession of faith. We begin discipling people before they ever come to the place of, of a conversion to faith in Jesus. Discipleship is this whole process before and after someone comes to faith in Jesus. It's all included. It's all connected. But understanding that, let's look now at these last two steps that Jesus says are included in the process of making disciples after our going. Looking, first of all, at baptizing. Baptizing. In his classic book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the beginning of our new life as a disciple of Jesus like this. Quote, As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is, therefore, not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, end quote. And when it comes to a visual demonstration of dying to ourselves and beginning a new life in Christ, there's nothing that pictures that quite as well or as powerfully as baptism. And in what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, a passage we very often read when we do a baptism service here in our gatherings, the Apostle Paul writes this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So what this means is that Christian baptism, this practice of baptism that we do, is an essential part 
of our discipleship. As publicly before witnesses, we declare the death, the, the complete abandonment of our own way of life, as well as our new life in Jesus and our complete devotion to Him as our Savior and Lord. And if you notice Jesus' command in particular, it's to be our public declaration of our faith in the Trinitarian God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in particular, which was really just about distinguishing Christian baptism from any other kind of baptism practice in that day and age. We are baptized into this Trinitarian name of God in particular as we are baptized in, literally the word is, into His name. But the thing I think it's important to highlight here is the way Jesus lists baptism as an essential part of what it means not only to make disciples, but to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who has put their faith in Jesus and has declared that publicly through baptism. That's where this comes from. So what that shows us, first of all, baptism is a command of Jesus. This is something Jesus came up with. This is not a church tradition that somebody came up with years ago that we're just trying to maintain and carry on. Baptism is the command of Jesus for his disciples. Secondly, it means that a very early part of our discipling of someone who comes to faith in Jesus, note, even before they are taught about all that Jesus commanded, is to encourage them to publicly declare their faith in Jesus through baptism. It's one of the early stages when we're discipling someone. We should be like, now that you've put your faith in Jesus, let's talk about getting you baptized. Finally, it means that if you've surrendered the authority of your life to Jesus and committed yourself to him as your Lord and Savior, but you have not yet been baptized, that means there's an aspect of your obedience to Christ that has not yet been fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean at all that someone's not truly saved if they haven't been baptized, not at all. And, and sometimes there's all kinds of different reasons why people delay their baptism. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding of what baptism is. It's a, uh, they feel like, maybe i got to get to a certain level of faith before I can be baptized. All kinds of different reasons that people delay it. But here's the thing. If, if you know you've put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and now, having studied and looked at this commission, you understand that baptism is the command of Jesus for all of his disciples. If you haven't been baptized before yourself, hey, my encouragement to you is this week, why not get in touch with me? We're planning a baptism service very shortly in the next couple of weeks. I would love to talk with you about following through with your own discipleship in this way. So why not get in touch with me this week? If that's something you haven't yet done, I would love to continue in your discipleship process that way. All right, lastly, let's look at teaching. Last thing Jesus says here, last part of the process is teaching. After going and making disciples, leading them to a public declaration of their faith in Jesus uh, through baptism, the last part of this disciple-making process that Jesus commands that we see in the beginning of verse 20 there is teaching. We are to teach. And this kind of idea uh, like of education, Christian education, this probably sounds the most familiar of all the steps that we often associate with discipleship we think of teaching people we've got to teach them about god's word and teach them about church life and, and all this at the same time it's something that's incredibly important for us not to miss is that if you notice jesus doesn't just call us to teach people all that he commanded you notice that no he calls us to teach newly baptized disciples quote to observe that is be obedient to all that i've commanded 
As Leon Morris notes, quote, Jesus is not speaking about education for education's sake. He speaks of the taught as observing what Jesus has commanded. In other words, Jesus is concerned with a way of life. And when it comes to the process of discipleship, this is such an important yet easily missable key. For for in the book of James, for instance, James writes, Do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Or, Or beyond his preaching and teaching alone, what did the Apostle Paul say to the church in Corinth? He says, quote, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So just again, as Leon Morris stated, the call is not to education alone. It's calling a disciple to, to a way of life, to a gospel-shaped way of life that includes obedience to all that Jesus has commanded. And yet so often we can imagine that our disciple-making work is done when we've just taught people about what it is that Jesus commanded when we have yet to complete the truly hard, the, the really actually long-term, lifelong work and project of teaching them to also observe and obey all that Jesus has commanded. That's a much harder part of the process. But that's what Jesus says is about making disciples, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. And you know, there's all kinds of different places that we could apply this when we think about what this would look like in our lives today. But knowing how hard I struggled and and honestly continue to struggle with this over the years myself, I want to speak right now directly to parents or those who work directly with children. I just want to apply this to one place and hopefully you'll be able to build it out into whatever specific context you are. But I want to speak directly to children, parents of children or people who work with children. And I'm saying this whether you still have young children at home, whether your children are grown and gone, have children of their own, or you just have a position of leadership, of spiritual leadership of some kind over children. The call to Christian parents, the call to Christian teachers is to make disciples of our children. That's very much included in Jesus' call and commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Part of that is to make disciples of our children. And I know, I'm fully aware, there are some today who would say, well, that's a violation of a child's autonomy to teach them they have to follow your faith and let them go out on their own and decide for themselves what it is that they want to follow. Uh, that's, That's how we should really do it. You shouldn't be discipling them to follow your faith, to which I would humbly and yet very firmly say, what nonsense. What nonsense. Uh, Because what do you imagine every other friend, teacher, politician, advertising agency in the world is doing at the very same time right now in the lives of our children? Aren't they discipling them to believe what it is they want them to believe, see the world this way, understand it according to my worldview? Absolutely, that's what they're doing. So why on earth would a child's parents be the one person who is restricted from discipling them? What, what nonsense. Christian parents, Christian teachers, you are to be intentionally, the best way you know how, going and making disciples of your kids. Leading them as soon as they're sufficiently mature to understand their new life in Christ, to be baptized and then teaching them, not just what Jesus has commanded, but by your life and example as well, teaching them what it looks like to be obedient to all that Jesus has commanded. And listen, there's, there's not one of us that does that perfectly. 
So this isn't meant to be some kind of guilt trip. Uh, I'm absolutely speaking as one failure to other failures. Nobody does this perfectly. But the hope being absolutely that just like Paul, you too could say to any one of your kids or someone that you are discipling right now, be imitators of me as I am following Christ. As I follow Christ, follow Christ. Because that's truly how you make a disciple, not just telling kids what to do, but by actually walking the talk, living out what it is that you say you believe. That's, that's how you truly make a disciple. And please, please, please hear me. There is, there is grace, thank God, there is grace for every single one of us in this, whether you feel like you're knocking it out of the park with this disciple making your kids thing, or like what I'm assuming is the majority of us, you feel like you don't even know where to start, there, there is grace for us in this. And the reason I know that there's grace is because nowhere in Jesus' great commission are we called to make disciples perfectly or, or, or be perfect disciples. That's, that's not in here. We're just simply called to go and make them. So if you're hearing this and you're saying to yourself, man, I, I don't even know where to begin with this. That sounds right, I guess, but I don't even know where to start. My encouragement to you, first of all, is just to start somewhere. Start somewhere. Share a Bible story, a verse with your kids, and, and talk through about, like, what does that mean? How, what does that mean to you? How do you understand what Jesus is teaching you? To share with them what's going on, what God is teaching you in, in your life. Uh, pray with them. All kinds of ways that you can start something today to begin discipling your kids. Maybe you feel like you're, you're hearing this, you're like, yeah, I'd like to do that, but you've failed significantly in your life, and you feel like disqualified from teaching your kids. Tell you what. Maybe for you, the example here is to disciple your kids by demonstrating for them what true repentance looks like. Show them what that looks like in their lives. If your kids are grown and gone, pray for them fervently and every day. And then go, just, just like Jesus commissioned us to. Go disciple them wherever and however the Spirit enables you. Just begin somewhere. And begin today. The, the, the point as it relates here to, to teaching, wherever you begin today, is not simply to, to teach new disciples what Jesus commanded. Not, not, don't just teach them what he commanded. Teach them to observe the commands of God. Teach them what it means to be obedient to the commands of God. And again, the way you'll do that best is by the way they see you doing it. However faltering or imperfectly that will most assuredly be. call of Jesus to every disciple throughout all generations remains a commissioning to spiritual multiplication. That's what Jesus has commissioned each one of us to in our lives, to spiritual multiplication, to be fruitful and multiply both in your own faith as well as in seeking to call others to faith. And that's going to look all kinds of different ways for all kinds of different people today. As you're hearing this, it's how is it calling you to respond to this? Maybe it's in, in thinking through your own life and, and how it is I need to, to go to the people that God has placed me around right now. I haven't been going. I need to get out of my own safe bubble and go to the places where people need to hear about Jesus. Maybe it's as a church we need to really consider about 
uh, how we operate uh, what we do here in such a way that it is orienting itself both towards uh, gathering and, and growing together ourselves, but also going. Maybe it's growing in our understanding of baptism and seeing we need to complete our discipleship in that way. Maybe it's in realizing we've spent a lot of time teaching, a lot of time talking about following Jesus and not a lot of time demonstrating that reality in our own lives. What, what is Jesus' commission here pressing on you today? Something that we need to do differently. When, when we read this commissioning of the disciples, first of all, 2,000 years ago, maybe you get the impression that, okay, I know it's the same call, but it was like way easier for them. It's way easier to respond to Jesus' call when you can look and see Jesus in the flesh, standing there resurrected. It's probably way easier to, to be able to be obedient to what he says when we can see him in the flesh like that. If I could do that, maybe I could follow Jesus' commission so much more easily. Maybe that's how you're feeling. I feel that way too many times. And yet, here's what's interesting. When we compare Jesus' commissioning of his first disciples... Here in this passage with Jesus commissioning of you and I today still through his word, I think there's actually some decided and, and really inspiring advantages to both, which a man named St. Augustine once described this way, and I'll close with this. He notes this. What do we see which they, that is Jesus' first disciples, did not? What, what are we seeing right now today that they didn't? Well, we see the church throughout all generations. We see that happen. Okay, then he goes on. What do we not see which these saw? Christ present in the flesh. And then he goes on and says, let what we have respectively seen help us. Whether you're the first disciples or disciples today, let what we've seen help us. The sight of Christ risen helped the first disciples to believe in the future church. And the sight of the church which we now see helps us to believe that Christ has risen. Amen. Amen.